0: Great to see all of you. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and uh, part of our preaching team. I want to welcome those of you watching online. Thanks for tuning in. As well, Uh, one thing that we're going to do starting next week is we're going to be moving into a new series for the summer on the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be calling it "Rebuilding: A Study in Nehemiah," as the whole world kind of is in this process of trying to rebuild a bit. Uh, We thought we'd go to a book in the Bible that's all about that. So we'll come back to John when we get to the fall. Uh, This will be our last message in it, though, for a little while. And uh, in this message, or in this passage that we read, we get a bit of a double meaning from Jesus. And sometimes I don't know if you, uh, some of you, are really in to puns and stuff, right? You, you do bu- double meanings on purpose. But a lot of times double meanings happen on accident and you say something that you, you don't realize actually how someone else might interpret the very same words. And so uh, newspaper headlines are sort of famous for this. Here's, a, here's some real newspaper headlines that are kind of confusing double meanings. Here's the first one. Miners refuse to work after death. Right. So surely there must have been some accident and they're not working, but of course they work. They don't work after death. They're dead, right? That kind of a thing. Uh, here's another one. Children make nutritious snacks. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, here's one of my favorites. Uh, criminals get nine months in violin case. It's an uncomfortable... Nine months. And it's not just newspapers. Uh, the other place that's great for these kinds of accidental double meetings are like old church bulletins and newsletters and stuff like that. So uh, here's one. Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husbands. <laughs> uh, another one. The lowest self esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. <laughs> And then uh, my favorite is the, at the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> right? So these, uh, these double meanings, like, I don't think that's what they meant, but, you know, if you've ever been to a church with a choir, it sounds like that sometimes. <laughs> um, And so Jesus uses a double meaning here in this passage. He uses uh, this phrase, lifted up. He uses it in verse 32 and in verse 34. If you have your Bible, grab it, uh, go to John 12, verse 32 and 34. He uses this phrase, lifted up. He says, uh, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Then in verse 34, the crowd says, "Uh, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Of man. Now, this phrase, lifted up, uh, John has used it in the mouth of Jesus before in this book, in chapter 3 and in chapter 8, and in each case, it, it's got this double meaning. On one hand, the obvious meaning is that when, when Jesus is lifted up, that means he'll be exalted, that means he'll be glorified, that means he'll be honored, that means he'll be praised. But what that al- also means is that the way in which he will be glorified and honored and praised, and was when he is... Lifted up from the earth on the cross. When the cross goes up into the air and he's lifted up. And so it's this double meaning. And the reason we know it's a double meaning is because of the verse that's right in the middle of this sandwich. Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So when Jesus says lifted up, yeah, he means he'll be glorified. But he's also talking about he'll be crucified. And it really is as Jesus is crucified that he is glorified. Now this is probably also a reference to Isaiah 52, verse 13. This was written 700 years before Jesus. A prophecy about the Messiah, it said this, behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then in the next few verses in Isaiah 53, what we get is a profound description of the suffering of the Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was upon him brought us peace. By his wounds we're healed. This is a double meaning. And this passage is fascinating to me because we're about to get to the, to the cross. We're, we're, we're less than a week away in John's uh, telling of this story. We're less than a week away from Jesus being crucified. And beginning in chapter 13, in just a few verses, is going to be all what's known as the upper room discourse. That sort of conversation Jesus had with his disciples on the night of the Last Supper. And so Jesus is, is looking ahead and going, my hour has come, the time has come, I'm going to be crucified. And so this is a passage that I think even before the cross happens, helps us understand the meaning of the cross when it happens. So here's what we're going to look at today from this text, is we're going to look at five crucial truths about the cross. And it's funny, even the word crucial comes from the word crux which comes from the word cross. At, at the center of history, at the center of what's important, it's the cross. Five crucial truths about the cross. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus being lifted up. And God, we pray today that we'd be able to see Jesus, that as we see him crucified, we'd also see him glorified. That this suffering servant, who the world would see as as a loser under judgment, that with the eyes of faith we could see him as the highly exalted one. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, first crucial truth about the cross is that the cross is truly disturbing. It's truly disturbing. And it was disturbing to Jesus. It says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. And this word troubled, here's how you could define it. It means an inner turmoil, disturbed, unsettled, thrown into confusion, greatly distressed. This is how Jesus is feeling. Now is my soul troubled. I'm confused. I'm unsettled. I'm distressed. And it's fascinating because all four gospels portray Jesus this way. We like to kind of imagine that Jesus would have never felt like this, that if Jesus was really strong, and if Jesus was really king, and if Jesus was really mighty, that he would have sort of walked around impervious to any kind of trouble, right? We might imagine that Jesus just was kind of a stoic, stiff upper lip, and nothing can affect me. But all four Gospels portray Jesus as being troubled, distressed, disturbed. I think that's actually one of the indications that they're true. Because I think if you were making it up, you wouldn't make up a hero that looks so troubled. We kind of imagine that Jesus really was like Clark Kent, you know, and the Superman thing was just right there. And at any moment, he was just going to sort of, you know, lift up his robe and emerge as Superman. But Jesus is truly troubled. Why? Why is he so disturbed? Well, on one hand, there's the physical reality of the cross. The cross is horrific physically, right? At a physical level, one thing that we don't think about very often, probably gratefully, is that people were crucified naked. So it was entirely humiliating, exposing. But it wasn't just that. It was the physical pain of it. I mean, it was one of the most horrific ways that you could kill somebody. What would happen is you would, you would drive nails in their hands or their wrists on the crossbeam, a nail through their feet or their ankles. And what would happen is as they set the crossbeam, what would happen is your shoulders would dislocate and separate. And because of the way you were hung, the only way that you could breathe would be to push yourself up with separated shoulders to get a breath. In Jesus' case, it would be worse because he would have been flogged so many times and his back so exposed and bloody, scraping up against the rough wooden cross. It's physically excruciating, and yet the reality is thousands of people were crucified. I mean, what Jesus experienced wasn't unique. Many people had been crucified. But at a spiritual level, it was unique. See, what's so disturbing, what's so distressing, what's so troubling to Jesus is the spiritual weight that he's about to endure as he suffers for the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him. Think about how much weight that is. Right? If, I, if I were just to say, all right, here, i got a backpack for you. Here's what I'd like you to do. Fill it up with all your sins. Every mistake you've made, every sin you've committed on purpose, every evil thought you've had Whoa, wait wait <laughs> here's some stuff you don't want to forget don't forget it isn't just the bad things you've done but the good things that you knew you were supposed to do that you failed to do put those in there oh wait 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 it's even more it's the good things you did for selfish reasons add those how big's your backpack at this point it's like santa's sleigh right i mean like and that's just me and that's just you. And imagine, throughout history, across all the world, all the people who'd ever believe in Jesus, walking up to Jesus and handing him their sack of sin. And he's got one and he's got another. And it's and it's crushing. And Jesus, the innocent one, is looking down the barrel of judgment for every sin even though he didn't commit them so of course he says my soul is troubled by the way do you have a slot for a God who can feel like that see I actually find it to be incredibly comforting because there's times aren't there when you aren't sure what the future holds for you there's times when you're even looking ahead and going I dread this I don't want to do this Jesus knows what that's like. There's a few of you in this room who uh, might be feeling this way already as you think about the workout you're going to do tomorrow. Uh, most of you are not thinking about this. You're thinking about pool time and barbecues. And, but there's a few of you. You know who you are. And you know that tomorrow is the day for the workout known as Memorial Day Murph. It's a big CrossFit thing. They like to name workouts after heroes, uh, fallen soldiers who have who've died. Uh, and so Murph is named after a soldier who died in the lone survivor thing. Uh, he was one of the Navy SEALs and, and passed away. And so this workout was named after him. And it's run a mile, then do 100 pull-ups, then do 200 push-ups, then do 300 squats, then run another mile. And if you do it the right way, you have to put on a 20-pound uh, rucksack also. The whole time you're doing it, you're like, I just wish I was dead. Um, I'm actually not doing it tomorrow. I have freed myself from that burden. Um, (laughs) But I've done it in the past. And and here's the thing. What's so bad about Murph isn't that you can't do it. It's that you know you can. But it's going to stink really bad. And that's what Jesus is feeling. And so in the times when you feel like, I'm overwhelmed, I don't think I can make it through, but actually I probably can make it through, but I don't want to have to make it through. Feel like that in life? You have a Savior who knows what that feels like. That's comforting. Now, the other disturbing thing is that if you want to follow Jesus, Jesus told us in the passage just before this, That if anyone serves me, verse 26, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. So in other words, if you want to follow Jesus, pick up your cross too. The cross is disturbing. Second crucial lesson from this text is that the cross reveals the glory of God. We've talked about this a little bit already, but I want to unpack it a bit more. The cross reveals the glory of God. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father... Glorify your name. This word glorify means praise, honor, make weighty. God, I want you to glorify. I want you to make big. I want you to make important. I want you to make praiseworthy your name. And then this is remarkable. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So get this, the voice of God booms. Jesus hears it. Jesus knows what the father is saying. Some people hear a sound and they're like, what is this? Did it thunder real loud? What was that? Other people kind of made out some words and are like, no, this sounds like an angel. And Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. What he's saying is, hey, this should get your attention. God is speaking. This is only the third time in all the gospels when the voice of God is audibly heard like this. The first one is at Jesus' baptism. The heavens open, the spirit descends like a dove, the father's voice booms out. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Second time is the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to this mountain and they're allowed to see him in all of his glory. They collapse, they fall down. They're like, we never want to leave this place. And the voice of the father booms. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And now this third time, the voice of God booms. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. When is the Father glorifying Jesus' name? It is in this hour. We would like to think that the time that the Father glorifies is when it's big and exciting and cool. Right, this is what we sort of imagine. If, if the glory of God were to show up, we'd expect it to be like this big reveal, right? Like, like on uh, Chip and Joe, you know, are you ready to see your fixer upper? Right? We imagine it's that. We imagine it's fireworks. We imagine it's a big parade. We imagine that it's like what we read a few weeks ago the triumphal entry. Oh, here he comes. Hosanna! Hosanna! There's the glory of God. But it's not that time that's the glory of God being revealed. It's in this time, during what Jesus repeatedly calls this hour. This hour. This hour of his suffering. This hour of his cross is when the glory of God will be revealed. Why? Because it's in this hour that we actually get to see who God is. It's in this hour that the justice of God and the love of God come together. The justice of God that says, I am so holy and so righteous that I cannot tolerate proximity to sin. And yet the love of God that is so moved, that is so drawn to saying, but I can't abide the idea of not having my people with me. And that's what we see at the cross. We see love and justice meet. We see the essence of God. Revealed on the cross. That's why the cross reveals his glory. Here's how Paul Miller says it in his book, Love Walked Among Us. He says, someone's glory is the essence of who they are. At the cross, we see God's essence is to hold nothing back for himself. God expends himself completely for us to the point of death. And that's his glory. This glory reveals the glory of God. And then ironically, third, the cross also judges the world. Reveals God's glory, but judges the world. Look at verse 31. Jesus says this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is ironic if you think about it. Because when you realize what's going on, what is the cross? The cross is actually Jesus being judged. Right, the crosses, all these people who had previously said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, saying, crucify him. It looks by all appearances that Jesus is the one being judged, and yet here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, this is actually the world being judged. This is how bad the world is that it's crucifying the Son of God. I, uh, a number of years ago, um, well, let me ask, some of you have been around here a while, um, and and you know, I, I, just like I did with Paul Miller, I quote people from time to time. Who would you guess I've quoted over the last 12 years more than anyone else? Anybody that's been around a while? Tim Keller, Tim Keller, you're all saying Tim Keller, you long-timers. You're right, Tim Keller. Someone asked me once, where in the building do you store the Tim Keller quotes? They're in the vault. Um, So Tim Keller's a pastor, was a pastor in New York. He's written a bunch of different books. And yes, I've quoted from him. He's shaped me tremendously. But about 15 years ago, I first heard of Tim Keller. Some people were sending me some of his sermons and some of his articles. And I was starting to read and interact with some of his stuff. And then one day, I decided I'm done with Tim Keller. This was before cancel culture exists, but I canceled Tim Keller in my heart. And the reason was, I was listening to this kind of Q&A thing with him, and someone asked a question, and I did not agree at all with his answer. I thought, I don't see that in the Bible. That doesn't feel right to me. I don't like that. I'm done with this guy. I judged Tim Keller. And you know what? My judgment of Tim Keller actually revealed more about me than it did about him. Because what it revealed about me was I don't have a possibility to learn from people I don't agree with 100%. I think that I know everything in my mid-20s. Tim Keller. See, see, there's a way in which our judging of something actually turns the tables and is actually judging us. And that's what Jesus is saying. So here's the logic of his his thinking when he says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Here's the first logic, is that murdering the Son of God shows how absolutely evil humanity is. We were made in God's image. We rebelled against him in the garden. And ever since then, God has been sending his word and God has been sending his promises and God has been sending his prophets. And over and over, rejected, 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 rejected. And so God says, okay, I'll send my son. And he comes and he declares good news and he opens the eyes of the blind and he heals the sick and he raises the dead and the lame walk and the demons are cast out. And they say, crucify him. That's how evil we are. Is that when God himself shows up, we're not interested in doing anything other than destroying him. That's how dark we are as humanity. No wonder we can't figure anything out. We're under judgment. This is the judgment of the world. There's a second aspect of this judgment that the cross does. It's in the end of verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? A lot of times what we do is we think that the cross was this moment when Satan won. That's who Jesus is referring to, the ruler of this world, the, the prince of the power of darkness, the one who seems to have so much control over the world systems and, and the, the flesh in our own hearts and all the different uh, ways that the world is twisted and dark. The, the prince of the power of the air, the scriptures call him, Satan. But the cross is not Satan's triumph, but it's actually his defeat. Because it's on the cross that our sin is forgiven. It's on the cross that the power of sin is broken. It's on the cross that Jesus begins to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. It's on the cross that actually Satan is crushed. We, we, you know, especially around Easter weekend, you know, it, it just, it preaches real good. To go like, on Friday, the devil won, but Sunday's coming, right? I mean, that preaches, but it's not true. One pastor said it this way, talking about the cross and the resurrection. He said the crucifixion is not a defeat overturned by the resurrection. It's a victory revealed by the resurrection. It's on the cross that Jesus is glorified. It's on the cross that Jesus has lifted it up. And it's on the cross that Jesus judges the world. Despite this judgment of the world, it's ironically also the cross that draws the world to Jesus. That's his next point, is that the cross draws people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Look at verse 32. Jesus says this, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, all people here does not mean every person uh, without exception. It means all people without distinction. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. There's not this kind of person is okay and that kind of person's not. Jesus said he didn't just come for the lost sheep of Israel. He came from people all over the world. And what has triggered this moment, if you were here last week, you'll maybe remember this. If you weren't, I'll catch you up. All throughout the Gospel of John, people have been kind of asking, is this the time? And Jesus goes, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour hour has not yet come. And then... What we looked at last week, something happened that changed it all. What was it? The Greeks, some Greek people come to Jesus' disciples and they go, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, now my hour has come. In other words, I came for the world. I came for people from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is one of the ways I think actually that the The church judges the world in a good way. The gospel judges the world. As the world is all after this sort of kumbaya, let's bring people together, let's have harmony, let's have oneness, and I'm all for it because I think it's in the heart of God, but the world doesn't have the resources to do it. What brings people together from every tongue and tribe and nation is Jesus. A week and a half ago, I was on a Zoom call with leaders and Uh, people from, really, uh, there were about 150 people from literally all over the world on a Zoom call. Every continent except Antarctica. And we're on this Zoom call. Most of the call was actually not in English. And Zoom has this feature, I didn't even know about this, where you can like pick what translation you want. And they had people translating. There were like six different languages it was being translated into. I'm listening to it being translated into English from Spanish and Italian and and I'm looking at these faces of people all over the world telling the same story. I was lost, but now I'm found. And our hope is to see the glory of Jesus expand all over the world. Next, uh, when, this Wednesday, I'm gonna be up real early and I'm gonna be talking to a church planner in Germany. His name's Andre, Leipzig, East Germany. It uh, was behind the, behind the wall. It was part of communist Germany back in, Those days, and it's so post Christian, it's practically pre Christian. And we talk every month, and he tells me stories of people who are being baptized, people who you and I will see in heaven. Why? Because when Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he'll draw all people to himself. This is the hope that we have as humanity. It's not in our education, and it's not in our politics. And it's not in our commerce, it's in Jesus. And finally, because of this, the cross looks foolish to the world. The cross looks foolish to the world. Really? This is the plan? This is the plan? Wait, so God's going to come and actually choose to die? What? This can't be the plan. That's exactly what the crowd is thinking, and actually that's what they say. Look at verse uh, 33. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So so they get it. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They've connected the dots. They're going, okay, wait, wait. You're the Christ. You're the Son of Man. You're the one the nation of Israel's been hoping for. You're the one that's going to create salvation. You're the one that's going to make things new. But wait, wait, wait. You're going to do that by dying? Who is this son of man? It's confusing. It looks foolish. It looks dumb. Right? A lot of people, even other religions, go, you know, Jesus was a good teacher, but there's no way he really died if he was God. Like, God would not possibly allow himself to be subjected to torture and mockery, and humiliation, and death from his creatures? What? What? That makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness to the world. But to us who are being saved, it's the wisdom and the power of God. See, if you ask us what we want, we get it all wrong. The nation of Israel, for a long time, they didn't have a king. They just trusted God as king. And then they started looking around at all the other nations. And they said, we've got to have a king like all the other nations. And so God gave them a king like all the other nations. And you know what they got? They got Saul. And Saul was a head and shoulders above everyone else. He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong. He was good looking. But he was also a terrible king. You realize this, don't you? That in the battle where David kills Goliath, before David kind of steps up, Goliath is their biggest guy. And he's calling out Israel's biggest guy. You know who that is, don't you? Saul. And when we rely on the biggest and the strongest and the boldest, we're acting just like the world. And it's actually when weakness shows up. A little kid there to deliver some cheese and bread to his brothers. Picks up the unlikeliest of weaponry and slays the giant. Not in spite of his weakness, but because of it. And this is how we have life. It's through the death of Jesus, through the weakness of Jesus, through the suffering of Jesus. Instead of head and shoulders, we get Jesus. Ordinary Not from anywhere special. Even when he's in his hometown, people are like, eh, I don't know. Probably very average looking, kind of nomadic, gets beat up easy, dies. Who is this son of man? Here's who he is. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he is. That's who he is. Do you see him? Do you have eyes to see him? in his glory, in his majesty on the cross for you if you'll receive him. And if you see him, I hope today you'll respond to him because Jesus indicates in this passage you might not see him forever. Look at the rest of this. Look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of God. Do you see him? Is there something even stirring in your heart right now that says, I want this Jesus. I want to follow this Jesus. I want to know this Jesus. I'm, I'm intrigued and I'm perplexed, but I want him. Follow him. Today's a day to surrender to him, to trust him, to say, yes, Jesus, I'll walk with you. Yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. Because if you wait, Jesus says... The darkness might overtake you. Don't wait. Don't delay. Trust this Jesus. Pastor Mark Dever says this He says, Following Jesus is costly, so consider it carefully. He may not make your life better in the short run, because if you follow him, you're following him to death death to yourself. Death to your dreams. Death to your comfort. Death to your security. It's costly. So consider it carefully. But here's the thing, it's urgent. So do it soon. Do it soon. None of us are guaranteed anything. If there's anything we've learned this last year, we know that. We're not guaranteed a moment. And if you can see him and desire him, then respond to him. And finally, it's worth it. So you'll never regret it. Yes you will follow him to the cross but you'll also experience with him the resurrection and you'll experience him making all things new. The kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Who is this son of man? He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father what a gift you've given us in your son. Give us by faith, the ability to respond with trust, with surrender. Help us to find our life in Christ. That in his death, he might be glorified, high and exalted in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.